Mars tugs at the human imagination like no other planet. With a force mightier than gravity, it attracts the eye to the shimmering red presence in the clear night sky. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and the Netherlands, Matthew Russell and Julio Abrea. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah, baby. Mars. Mars. That was a quote by John Noble Wilford, who is a is a very well respected science journalist for the New York Times and or science author. I thought it's a very Marsy week this week. What makes you think that? It's the good old Perseverance landing that was very very exciting it was, it this was. week. You went through a party. We did. We threw it. We threw a Discord party, and it was absolutely amazing to have all our very international patrons on there. One of the patrons came up with a very interesting question while we were on. I'm going to pass that question on to everyone else. But before we get there, did you see the Antares launch today of of, of a Cygnus, the, the SS Catherine I Johnson? I did not watch it, but I did hear about it, yes. It's another one that carries a bunch of CubeSats on one of those Eleanor missions. It's got a couple of secret satellites as well. Yep. Undisclosed secret satellites. But it, it sort of feels like Business as usual by now, right? All these cargo missions to the ISS. Well, there have been quite a lot, hasn't there? Because there was MS-16 as well this week. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, that is one of the best photos. The Roscosmos released a photo of it taking off. It's one of the best launch photos I've seen. It's it's really, it's got something about it. It's, it, it looks like there's a lot of power. You, you look at it and go, yeah, that that's a lot of grunt. I might have missed that photo. Can you show it to me? Where did I see it? It was like photo of the week somewhere. Ages ago, remember, Julio, we were talking about the fact that the Piers module is going to get removed and Norca and the European arm are going to replace it. Finally, the European arm, yes. It's been in storage for quite a long time. Yeah, that progress is going to be the one that takes off the Piers module. And Norca goes up, yeah, later on this year, apparently. It's going to be quite exciting. Mainly because of the Antonio Fortunato's showing me on the model of the space station that hangs in the foyer of, what's it called? The Astronaut Training Center. European Astronaut Center, EAC. The EAC, that's it. Which has been also sort of center of news this week with the whole announcement of the European search for new astronauts. Oh, well, the other big one, the other big one, there's two Elon Elon Musky ones. Did you see, you know we were sort of saying how uh, Falcon 9 booster landings have become very, very routine. They actually, they actually failed one this week. Yes, it had been reused how many times? I think this was its sixth flight. Yeah. So yeah, so. apparently one of the engines, at least one of the engines failed on the way back down and they just dumped it in the ocean away from the drone ship. Yeah, it makes me think once you reach this sort of stable situation they have now in which they can operate with a relatively low number of core stages or of first stages mm-hmm. that you use over and over again. When you lose one, let's say if you reach a point in which you are manufacturing them once a year to replace a loss, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious on how that works with their numbers. Yeah, because they must have stopped. You, you're right. They must have. They must get to the point where they're not making as many, right? Yeah. Not really thought about I, that. I would not know if they stopped production or not. All, all I can imagine that in the past, they probably had a factory, let's say, producing them constantly when they were not mm. yet as successful at reusing them. Once you reach this sort of stable situation, you don't need to make them all the time 
originally they weren't going to be using reusable the reused or flight proven boosters with the human spaceflight were they but they but they are they are able to now i think that was more of a nasa thing nasa wanted new ones each time and then uh, they changed their mind I, I guess you could say it is flight proven isn't it if you ask me i would prefer to fly on a plane that i know has been used and tested than flying <laughs> on a plane that has it's never like a second hand oh my god has this plane done a journey before yeah, I know what you mean. That's a bit weird, isn't it? And did you also see that Elon Musk had invited Putin to Clubhouse, which apparently is some app? I actually just installed that app just to see what this was about. And it seems to be some sort of social media audio only. Yeah, I think it's 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 like invite only. And, and Elon Musk said, oh, Putin, come and have a chat with me. And uh, the Kremlin answered with, yeah, Putin's not really into social media. Well, why would he be? It's just, there's only a downside for him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's kind of crazy the power that uh, Elon has with regards to social media yeah. when he, all these people that move from WhatsApp to Signal because he just said so. And who knows how many more are now signing to Clubhouse like I just did. Yeah, well, just because he said so. Yeah, and and you think he has lots of power. Like he tweeted about Bitcoin as well. Like he sort of sort of says silly things like, "Oh, Bitcoin's looking a bit expensive at the moment." You think what's he what's he up to? He can completely shape markets as well. It's like ah, <laughs> yeah, he's got a lot, quite a lot of power. Who Someone knows? said once, "With great power comes great responsibility," right? Mm. Yeah, he's not very and that responsible. That was Spider Man's uncle. <laughs> Spider-Man's uncle. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Before he dies. Oh, oh, spoiler alert. Before he dies. Well, it, only, only, it's only a phrase. spoiler in one of the universes. Oh, it's only a spoiler from the past 50 years yeah, or so. It depends what timeline, isn't it? It depends what timeline you're on. Um, we should talk about Perseverance. We should Because that's what I'm going to dedicate this episode until we get to our brilliant interview, Gary Martin from NASA and currently the ISU. Former um, NASA, currently the Vice President of the International Space University. He's the first and only space architect. NASA space architect. Pretty cool moniker, if ever there was one. Uh, that's coming up, that's coming up. But uh, the rest of the show, I, I just wanted to talk about Perseverance because just to sort of ram home just what an incredible achievement it is. So we, we, we had a little... We had a little get together on discord uh julio was there lynn was there lynn popped in that was nice and uh, we had a very international uh, bunch of people one of our patrons neil from denmark he mentioned podcast 196 where i mentioned the denmark pro audio dpa microphones that have gone on the curious uh, not on curiosity on perseverance didn't go on curiosity so perseverance is the first rover to have microphones on mars and he said to everyone else in there the the germans and the australians and the argentinians etc etc what from their country had contributed to perseverance just as i was sat there one of my friends um said oh did you know that the parachutes were made in tiverton which is a little town just down the road from where I'm living right now. And yes, the uh, uh, so Tiverton, Heathcote Fabrics, the director Peter Hill said it was a very, very proud achievement and 15 years of hard work. 
and he'd spent the seven minutes of terror on his knees in front of his TV set despite his dodgy rural Wi-Fi. Because Tiverton is pretty, it's a pretty rural town. He's out in the middle of nowhere, really. It's, it's Devon. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that uh, NASA had seen this company making this particular type of fabric. And in this sort of chains of high-risk, complex manoeuvres, you do not want to be the one <laughs> that it went well and it landed and it went well. But you just, if you are in charge of one of those segments, yes, you are extremely stressed during well, those periods. Well, we know that the parachutes are, are like a major source of of a single point of failure, right? Like, I mean, because it's one of the things that delayed the European rover is the parachute issue, isn't it? That and and also delays related to, to the pandemic, of course. It was looking quite dicey anyway, wasn't it, with the parachutes before the COVID crisis? You know, it's, it's, it's a hard nut. It's a really hard nut to crack. So, yeah, you would have thought that, that uh, you know, the, the, the actual designing of the parachutes, and this is the fabric that holds it. And, and just to put that into perspective, these parachutes are, absolutely massive they're 21.5 meters in diameter and uh the the spacecraft you see i, I noticed that quite a few news outlets got this wrong the spacecraft enters the atmosphere at 13,670 miles an hour so that's 13,670 miles an hour which is eight times faster than a bullet so it's it's traveling eight times the speed of a, a, a sort of you know, a fast bullet of that. But the parachute doesn't open immediately. There's about 247, 240 seconds where the spacecraft is slowing down in the atmosphere. And it's got down to about 1,000 miles an hour, 940 miles an hour. And then the parachute opens. Well, I think if you open parachutes while you're going <laughs> too fast... Yeah, it would rip it, it to shreds. It, it would just... Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Would, it would fail. So I mean, so obviously, and all of this is automated. I mean, this is just incredible, isn't it? That you that you sort of hit the this the bit that I find incredible is that you've got this landing spot. You've got Jasiro Basin, and one of the things that you've got to do is land somewhere that's quite low. And so they they're landing in a basin because you've got to go through a lot of atmosphere to slow down. So you you can't you can't land on the highlands because you wouldn't have slowed down enough. The atmosphere is so thin. Exactly. There are two aspects. First is that you have more more atmosphere to to break you and mm. also in the highlands the atmosphere is less dense. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just got everything against you. So you you've got to land in the right place and they're sort of they're aiming for this just Jasiro place. And you think, well, it's such a tiny spot that they've chosen to land on. Of course, they've chosen it because, A, you can land on it. It's it's low enough down. But it looks like a really, really good place to look for signs of life. You know, there may have been billions of years ago life in a in a river there that, um, that, that used to flow into a big lake, depositing all their sediments in this fan shape known as a delta. Yes, if you're if you're looking for life, you try to go where the water is, right? Where the, or where the water was. Or where the water was, in this case, yeah. Forty percent of missions sent to Mars—that's the number that have been successful, and own, and all of those are American. No one else has managed to <laughs> to do it. So, it's... yeah, I was actually mentioning it to Gary during the interview that yeah, NASA really has this 
nailed down. I've well, got it nailed now, haven't they? I mean, it's 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 unbelievable. I mean, I still wonder what 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 the engineers actually put the chance of success down as because it can't be a hundred percent, can it? But is it eighty percent? Is it like every you know every ten that you send, you lose two? Uh, during the video transmission that we were watching together, you could see how nervous oh my God. these guys were. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. Everyone looked apps because what was weird is that everyone had their face masks on, but you could still see the utter terror and stress in their eyes. You know, they were really quite stressed, weren't they? Yeah, and this, uh, these minutes of of terror cannot be described any better. No, no. I mean, just look in their eyes, and you can see. Yeah, they genuinely see it as being stressful. Now, I did a bit of number crunching to see if I could make it make more sense about how ludicrous a, a feat this is. And so I scaled everything down by 10 million times and and this is what I come up this is what I came up with. <laughs> so it's the imagine imagine you've got uh, uh, a basketball the earth spinning around and moving. So it's spinning and moving and you've got to fire a, a coronavirus, so something the size of a coronavirus. Off, off this. Which a, a virus is? It's pretty small. Way smaller than a bacteria. To a virus to a basketball is a bit like uh, perseverance to an Earth in in comparison and size. So I've scaled everything down by ten million. So you're firing this coronavirus off a basketball that's spinning and moving, right? And you've got to hit a football that's six miles away. <laughs> it's got to hit a football that's six miles away, so you wouldn't even be able to see it. And the football's also spinning and moving really fast. And you've got to land the coronavirus on in the middle of the dot of an eye where the lo- where the logo made in China is written in tiny print somewhere on the ball. And you've got that's to land quite it in specific. there. Yeah, but it's it's like it's just so crazy, isn't it? And 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 it's like. <laughs> How do you do it? How do you do it? I, I tell you how. I tell you how. Uh, first, you get extremely brilliant people working mm-hmm. on orbital mechanics and tra- tra- calculating these trajectories. With They do all these simulations and calculations. Of course, physics. Um, and of course, the, the moment you're traveling in space, okay, you have to take into account all the gravitational pulls and effects. And this is also... In sort of how you you manage to you manage to travel in space as well via gravity assists and such, especially when you do missions to places like I don't know Mercury or Jupiter. We have seen it in some ESA missions, mm-hmm. but you have people that dedicate their whole life to this, and these are brilliant. I have to say, even you know you are work you work at the space agency, and you already think, okay, I'm surrounded by literally rocket scientists and geniuses. Mm-hmm. And even within that, the orbital mechanics guys are above all of that. Oh, yeah. The, 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 there's that one guy who 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 discovered the interplanetary network who worked on the orbital mechanics of a, of a mission. Oh, what was the name of the mission? It was a mission that basically did these uh, figure of eight chaos maneuvers and at the same time, he sort of worked out the interplanetary network of of all these um, that joins up all the uh, Lagrange points of all the different planets. And you think <laughs> it's crazy maths. It's crazy maths. It's just insane. Beautiful minds. 
They they are that that's the J, JPL craziness. One thing that did come up in the uh, when we were in the Discord was was that we were all what everyone someone said. Of course, that you know, Perseverance has been on Mars for eleven minutes now, and twenty two seconds, and uh, it's already it, it's been there already, or it's already in pieces. And uh, there was some discussion about whether that was actually true or not. And uh, to, just to add to that confusion, there's a there's a great video by Veritasium about uh, the speed of light is only ever measured in two directions. So it has, you have to go there and back. And so if if the journey there is 11 minutes, but the journey back for light is instantaneous, then it, it, it might all, we might actually be look, looking at Mars in real time. Okay, but you're mentioning <laughs> a situation in which <laughs> uh, light would travel slower in, in one a different direction, direction. Yeah. and instant in the other, which, mm-hmm. of course... I, <laughs> you say it cannot be. What's mind blowing is that what you're saying is that it cannot be proven. Yeah, it that can't, it's not it can't be like proven. That. You, you can only you can only assume it. You can only assume. But you it. have like to Occam's, assume it because yeah, yeah, you have to assume it because it, it makes Razor, cal- right? it makes calculations a lot easier if you do. Um, that it, that it's roughly that 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 light travels at the same speed in both directions but in vacuum it, but it turns out that it doesn't have to it doesn't actually have to um it's just yeah a, but it's it only travels at the same speed it, in both directions in vacuum so if you are receiving it via different mediums on the way in and the way back you can actually have two different total speeds yeah no that is true yeah yeah that is true if if yeah if you when you fired it off it hit a mirror and then went through a different substance yeah but yeah. then the journey time is still the two added together Indeed, indeed. Um, anyway, that that is a complete distraction from. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to talk about like how the journey of perseverance from Earth to Mars because I think it is quite a cool one. So do you remember the thirtieth of July, twenty twenty? I do, I do. Mid pandemic, pandemic put all of these things pretty pretty at risk, didn't it? It was like, oh no, well maybe you know. Mars 2020 is going to be put back to Mars 2022. So it's and that's always the risk with these missions. The moment you lose, you, you miss the launch window, yep. you get you get delayed by two years minimum. Mars and Earth have to be in the right position. So yeah, it's launched. And what's incredible about that launch vehicle, the Atlas V, it's essentially it is like a really good aim at Mars. So it's, it fires it off, and as it leaves Earth, it, it's not messing around in orbit or anything like that. It literally goes straight off Earth and is going 24,600 miles an hour at that well, point. You, you, actually, you want to optimize and maximize that all the propellant that you're using all along the way mm. is taking you in the, in the right way, yeah. in the right direction. And, and Absolutely, and apparently like the, that, that launch vehicle is incredibly accurate at, at <laughs> firing something in that direction. So the launch vehicle itself is really, really, really important. Uh, but there are a couple of times where the, the obviously the path has to be fine-tuned because, of course, it's travelling so fast at that point that any small manoeuvre now is going to push it in a different direction. So even, even if Atlas V, and you mentioned this earlier on, even if Atlas V had fired it exactly in the right uh, direction, which would be impossible, but even if it has... Earth's gravity, you have to take Earth's gravity into, into account and Mars's gravity. So Mars, Mars Mars's gravity obviously helps because it's 
it's pulling it towards it. So that's actually helpful. But there's loads of other bodies in the solar system. Yeah, like Earth's gravity, Mars Jupiter. gravity, the moon, the sun. Yep. Everything. Jupiter is always messing around. Yeah, Jupiter's so naughty as a, as yeah, a planet. Yeah, so and, it, and it's like, <laughs> so it's so it's so he's and, so and full of himself. It's the three body problem, isn't it? Where where it's too complicated. You you couldn't have worked it. You couldn't have worked it out. It's it's too. It's unsolvable. Essentially, it, it's unsolvable. Meaning that you don't have one equation that can describe it. But yeah you do simulations but even the simulations you'd have to you'd have to run an incredibly deep simulation wouldn't you to do something like that when it comes to that like i said i i look upwards to the orbital mechanic mechanics yeah. guys and <laughs> but they still have to they still have to make the these sort of course corrections so the first course correction came on august the 15th so it's 15 days after the launch it makes a um, fine tune and it's already 27 million miles into its journey at that point. But it's good that you mentioned that, Matt, because this is exactly when you were giving the the analog of how exact this needs to be mm-hmm. with that, I don't know, coronavirus that you're shooting. Of course, that coronavirus doesn't have its own propulsion in which it can course correct along the way. No, that is true. That it, is it's, true. It's like it's more uh, when you are when you're going by boat and crossing the uh, crossing the ocean. You might try to go in a certain direction, but at many points you can, again, course correct according to the stars or the navigation patterns or whatever. And this is something that you have with these space missions too. So yes, okay, we have to be very exact on what we want to do <laughs> because every course correction is also very expensive from the point of view of, of propellant. That yeah, well, you, your propellant is precious, obviously. The vehicle that's, that's doing these uh, course corrections it's only got five bits of fuel, seven at best. So they've got these like emergency course corrections at the end if they haven't quite got it right. But it's it's planned for sort of five burns. That's it. There's only enough propellant for five course corrections. Or one very long burn. Depends. I never got down to the bottom of of what's at what the propellant is on 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 the vehicle, on the cruise stage. So on the cruise stage of the of perseverance. I never actually found out what it was. And I looked everywhere. I've wasted a lot of time this afternoon. So if anyone knows, can they please let me know? But yeah, it's it's five, it can do f- five course correction. First one in on the 15th day. And all the time it's on its way, by the way. They're checking the health of the spacecraft. So it had already act it had already got a little bit cold and had a had gone into safe mode. Uh, the Perseverance rover itself. They're checking things like the battery on Ingenuity helicopter as well that has to con- continually be checked and make sure that's okay. The, the 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 actual, the spacecraft itself, not only is it doing course corrections, but it's also changing its own attitude so that, that it can keep, get rid of some of the spin and to keep the antenna pointed towards the Earth for communications and stuff like that, and the solar panels pointed towards the sun, so it's like really complicated. Um, so like like you think, like the cruise stage is like in, must be an amazing feat of engineering in itself, and no one really talks about that much because I guess it's quite boring thinking of a journey to Mars like that. But well, a sort of kick stage like this. I don't know if the exact technical term for this one is a kick stage. So yes, they are technical, uh, 
feats, engineering feats. They are sort of like, uh, yeah, like the upper stage of a rocket as well that does hmm. similar things in orbit to place a satellite. They are amazing on, on their own, but it's sort of things that we know how to do. We use them often, right? Yes, that's it, isn't it? The, the, the technology is very, very tried and tested, unlike the sky crane. That we'll, get, that we'll get onto in a minute. <laughs> See, so September the 30th, they do another correction burn, 115 million miles on the clock at that point. So another TCM2 trajectory correction maneuver. Then December the 18th is an interesting one because that's the one where I think the first two, they're just, they're just aiming at Mars. And this December the 18th one is where they're they're adjusting the speed and direction so that the spacecraft arrives at the right location. So that... that the crater, yes. Yeah, so, so you think, God, and it's still like millions and millions of, you know, tens of millions of miles out, and they're doing that manoeuvre at that point. But then again, you, you are travelling through the vacuum of space. Hmm. Your perturbances yeah, but... can be calculated. <laughs> You know the rotation of the speed uh, of Mars. Hmm. But the scale is just insane, Julio. It's like if, if I scaled up the coronavirus to a bullet, if, 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 if Mars, say if it was a bullet and we, we, we'd have these manoeuvring things, the bullet would have to travel a million miles. So like four times the distance to the moon. That's how far it would have to travel if it was bullet-sized. You think the scale is just... You've got this tiny speck travelling through space to hit this unbelievably distant object. Well, you, It's just... Yes, the scale yes. is just, it's just preposterous. Yes. Think of the probes we sent to the big oh, planets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, yeah. Think I mean, of New Horizons. New, New Horizons is just insane. That is think just of the incredible. Voyagers. Yeah. Yeah. But the Voyagers, the, all the, yeah. the flybys that they did on this unique alignment of, of the solar system. And, and think of the computers those, had, the, those mm. orbital mechanic, mechanics guys had in the 70s. That's mind-blowing as well. Well, yeah, New Horizons, though, getting to Arakoth, I think it's called now, an object that you can't even see through the most powerful telescopes. It's, that is just insane. What's insane as well is that they can still, after going through Pluto, they have propellant left over mm. or these sort of maneuvers as well. Might do it again. Yep. After Arakoth as well. You go just choosing another target to swing by. Um, so yeah, it's got there's a couple more uh, correction maneuvers that it does. But again, I actually couldn't find the um, Perseverance rover sort of clocked, you know, mentioned its TCM2 and TCM3 and TCM1 maneuvers. But it didn't mention, and I couldn't find mention of the next two. There's just as Hope and Tianwen were arriving at Mars, there should have been a TCM4 and a couple of uh, six days later, a TCM5. To, to get it just right for their manoeuvre. But I couldn't see any mention on NASA or anywhere whether those course corrections had actually been done, but assuming they were. And then there's TCM5X and 6 if they're needed. So if, if like they're the final ones, and I definitely don't know whether they happened or not. So um, And that gets it ready for the 
the so that's the cruise stage over, and then you're into EDL entry, descent, and landing, which is of course the fun where, part. Where, yeah, which is the fun part, which is where we this is where we all jumped onto Discord and and we watched the whole of EDL basically. Um, so yes, the we 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 saw the cruise stage separation. So that was that was obviously animated, and you sort of flew through the middle of the th- through that cruise stage, and uh, and that was at eight thirty eight GMT. So we were like we were about an hour in, weren't we, into our little drink online uh then it hits the atmosphere not that much later only about like 10 minutes later hits the top of the martian atmosphere traveling like we said at twelve thousand one hundred miles an hour then 11 minutes later it's it's been blasting through the atmosphere at that point and it's uh and the spacecraft has heated up to 1300 degrees centigrade and the heat shield has slowed the spacecraft down to just under a thousand miles an hour and, and that's, that's when, where you open the parachutes. And that's when you open up your parachutes. And uh, yes, so the parachutes deploy at supersonic speeds. <laughs> um, but the parachutes open with a new technology. So before, with Curiosity, they they it was just a time. It was just timing. Whereas the parachutes on this one are triggered with this thing called a range trigger. It actually looks at the at where it is and decides when to open the parachutes uh, whether it's whether it needs to open them early if it's overshooting or whether it needs to open them late if it's if it's undershooting the target that closes down the window uh, of where they're landing massively 50% which mean which saves weeks of traveling time so if you know because c- it could be up to like like 50 miles off where you want to be and it uh, extends the the useful mission time yeah, but like what's massively. most important for the scientists. Yeah, yeah. So you you get where you want to be w- without having to trundle over there painfully uh, using your you know using your rover and the power and all that all that t- all that time to get to where you want to go. But this is this is also where you science. see the technology advances in terms of uh, navigation, AI in, in a way of autopilot. Now you you can do it with a sort of um, this range trigger technology. Hmm. Before that, you had to calculate everything in advance, and if you hit the timing wrong, it could happen. You know, you could hit the timer wrong for some reason, and then by the time the, the parachute's open, you're just too close or too far, and you just hit the ground, and that's it. Oof. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's good to first check how far you are from the ground before you open, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, which is which is hard to do, isn't it? Because there's no, you need the right sort of frame of reference. But yeah, so this has got this. They tested out this technology, and it obviously worked because the rover landed in a really, really spot on, didn't it? Basically, you've got this ellipse that you can land in, and that's with each subsequent missions that they do. So the original Mars exploration rovers, they had a 93 mile by 12 mile ellipse that they could land in. Falling ninety three miles away from where you want to be is a, is presumably quite annoying for something small like those original uh, Mars exploration rovers, especially at, uh, at the speeds that they can travel. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, so that's so that's a major breakthrough. And then there's a second major breakthrough in the next bit. So twenty seconds after that parachute's opened, um, you the heat shield heat shield 
separates, uh, detaches 20 seconds after that parachute deployment. So, which then obviously allows the rover itself to be looking down at the ground. And so it uses this thing called terrain relative navigation technology which wasn't on Curiosity either. NASA described this as the Neil Armstrong of technology, but it's more like Neil and Buzz because it's got two systems working in tandem. So you've got the lander vision system and the safe target selection system. Neil's looking out the window and flying the thing while Buzz is saying, yeah, that would be a good place to land or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And also and, saying how much fuel they have left. Yeah, how much fuel you got left and everything else. So it's, I don't it's think kind these of, systems are doing that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's subtly different. So the lander vision system, or the LVS, determines where the spacecraft is, where, where it is over the Martian surface. And I love this name, LVS. And, and if you say it quickly, LVS, everyone calls it Elvis Presley because it sounds a bit like Elvis. Elvis, the lander vision system. And it has to operate only for 25 seconds. 25 seconds. I bet this is a pretty expensive piece of kit as well because like the numbers are insane. So from about 13,000 feet or 4,000 meters to us metric people, it tells the rover to use one of its cameras to, to quickly take picture after picture after picture. And each of these pictures it looks at divides it up into 5,000, uh, divided up into squares that cover a, a sort of 5,000 foot area surface area and then it looks for patterns in though it looks for patterns like the dark created by cliffs craters boulders and all those kind of things and just looks for patterns and then compares that to what it's got in its memory and when it can find five landmarks that match it it then it sort of says yep yeah, that there that's where i am and then it and then it takes another image and re keeps repeating the process and and builds up these things. And once it's got three successful image-to-map comparisons, it then switches into another mode where, where it starts to do fine landmark matching. And then it breaks it down into boxes that cover 410 feet across. And then and it does the same again and, and starts doing these. And it needs at least 20 matches in one second of eyeballing an image to uh, to kind of to go back to the computer and say this is where I am, and it normally it normally manages a hundred and fifty like um, matches of of ground topology and 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 dark spots on in each of these little squares and and basically is able to sort of plot exactly where it is and then that's the bit where the uh, terrain relative navigation system, which I guess is the TRN when there's no funny pop singer there to call it the Turin. Someone must have called it the Turinosaurus Rex or something. And that <laughs> and that decides where it's going to land. So the, the terrain navigation system says, yeah, that's a that's a good place to land. That's yeah. a safe target. And and the best thing about this is that the odds of a successful landing used to be 85%. So that's presumably what it was for Curiosity, that even if the sky crane works and everything works you can still land in a really rubbishy boulder or something like that but they reckon that this system increases the the likelihoods of landing on in a good place to 99% from 85 which which is pretty radical isn't it well, you, you first of all you might, it would be very bad if you're landing and just crashing against the wall of the crater for instance after everything but, you know after, after <laughs> or, or in a very inclined position or whatever 
but it also highlights the importance of the of the mapping satellites that are around Mars. That you can have these high resolution images to which these systems can compare again mm. against for the landmarks and and also all, thanks to them all the analysis that has been done in advance on what are the correct or acceptable landing spaces. There's a lot going on behind that in terms of image imagery archive and the speed at which it has to compare the images. Reading how this works, it also makes me wonder how much of a cross-breeding there is between these and, again, AI and autopilot on self-driving cars today mm. because there mm. seems to be a lot of, again, pattern recognition, reacting in real time. There seems to be a lot going on. I, I could imagine that in this decade where this has exploded that it has it has to have been a lot of crossbreeding between these these areas yeah i mean this is just, i guess this is a little bit of Gar- gary's area isn't it where it's 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 tech it, it's technology it's like looking Advanced at all those different yes. yeah looking at those technologies and how you implement it it's like amazing technology transfer and again yeah between industries that are not necessarily attached to space and space yes yeah did you see the image of high rise because obviously high rise has been one of the is one of the instruments that's been mapping mars like to this like brilliant extent but it actually high rise has actually take took just like it did with curiosity it took a picture of perseverance landing <laughs> so it took it from uh, 435 miles away and and that, and that there photo is, is incredible it's just insane i literally can't get over how amazing that photo is and and i remember so crisp yeah, it's super crisp. I and mean, I remember it did it exactly the same for Curiosity's landing as well. And I just couldn't believe that you could that you could get instrumentation that that good where you could point it at the right place and 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 take a photo of it. So you can actually see that it all worked. You can see the parachute in it. I mean, that's it. That that is the only photo there is of the parachute opening. It's mind blowing. It also shows that they know exactly where they are landing thanks to these new systems because yeah. Back in my day, hmm. it was probably like you land, you're safe, and then you also then have to start in detail figuring out where you are, right? Yeah, I mean, and if you think about it, this is the same. This is the same scale as a coronavirus landing on a football. So it's like that should bring it home to you, just like how incredible that is. That it's like, yeah, there's going to be a coronavirus sort of landing on this football at any point you've got to point your microscope at at that exact point to see it it's totally bonkers <laughs> yeah it's yeah i can just... accept that yes <laughs> bonkers is uh i think it's this scientific definition yes. yeah that is it is the scientific def- definition yeah it's they tested that system by the way the, the the terrain relative navigation system in the desert like 660 times landing the mojave desert and 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 basically getting the system trained up, I suppose. But yeah, they had they had lots of other sensors this time in the back shell that holds the parachute, done a lot of data capture for atmospheric entry. So there's loads of stuff now that they've learned about the atmosphere and slowing down in the atmosphere that they didn't get when they did Curiosity. Before uh, uh, Perseverance does any science, it's already done like a, a, a whole heap of research already for for landing on Mars. Um, then of, after that, once it's once it's chosen a pl- place to land, 
your back shell comes off and your jet packs all start um, kicking in and it flies to the place where it wants to go, hovers over it, sky crane, lowers down... <laughs> Lowers down Perseverance Rover down to the ground, which which has I, to be. I know I know this is the second time, but <laughs> it's just my man. Yeah, it that, it is insane. Again, that that's is, nuts. It's beautiful. It is the engineering it is, behind this. It's beautiful. There is something really special, isn't there, about that that engineering solution of what we're gonna yeah have something that hovers above and just slowly lowers yeah. you down and. In fact, flies off. During the interview, Gary goes a little bit into the this, the way of landing on Mars selection. Ah, mm. uh, yeah, no, it's very interesting point as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah because he, he's comparing: <laughs> Do you want to design a landing system that is specific for these missions, or one that you can build into for later using it as well for humans? Without putting out a spoiler, he, he wasn't a fan of the sky crane. <laughs> That's true, but well, you'll you'll hear exactly in yeah, what context yeah. that is. I mean, um, I would love to have humans landing on the bikes, uh, bouncing around the surface. Perseverance has got on the floor. It's a one-ton object. It's 126 kilograms heavier than Curiosity, so it is actually significantly bigger. But I didn't realize how tall it was as well. It's like seven foot three inches. So if, if you stand next to it, it's taller than a tall, you know, a very tall person. 2.2 meters for us in the metric world. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's, uh, if you were that high, you would, you have a high chance of be, being playing for the NBA at least. Perseverance could be a basketball player. Is it a, like Shaquille O'Neal's height, more or less? That sounds about right. Yeah, and he also weights like a ton. So it's he, like you're landing a Shaquille O'Neal on Mars with the skyscraper. <laughs> Officially a giant at that point. Imagine traveling tourists in, in a plane that size. Um, uh, I just thought I'd mention in, in Ingenuity the helicopter before before we go to our interview because the one thing that I was waiting for is when is Ingenuity helicopter going to fly? And so I did a little bit of digging around. So just in case anyone doesn't know what Ingenuity is, it's a little helicopter that's actually been tied to the belly of, of Perseverance. And again, it's a, it's a tech demonstrator to, to say, look, instead of trundling around very slowly on the surface of Mars, we can actually fly up and, and actually do some proper reconnaissance of areas that we might want to go visit. Because what's frustrating is that Curiosity could have trundled past really interesting things and never known that they were there so ingenuity yeah it's this little solar powered um um quadcopter i guess well it's a helicopter with a double-bladed helicopter and um what's the problem with mars is the atmosphere is so thin so helicopters aren't exactly ideal um but yes this is going to stay on the bottom of perseverance for at least 30 days so more like probably more like 60 days and while it's underneath they're testing the battery so they're they're charging up the battery sometime this week to 30 percent, and then they're going to charge it a little bit more to 35 and they're just going to keep looking at the data and see how it matches the data when when it was in flight and so see how mars is affecting the battery because they're they're sort of off the shelf normal lithium ion batteries that are in that, that are in this quadcopter Definitely, definitely a technology demonstration here. 
Yeah, but so it's like massively adapted. I find it to be one of the most interesting parts of the oh, mission. It's gonna be, yeah, it's going to be amazing. I mean, yeah. if it works, if it works once that they they you know they're sort of saying that's ninety percent of what we want to do with it. Um, so it just has to go up in the air, hover a bit, and if it crashes, it's still done ninety percent of what it's supposed to have done. But if they can get it to do another flight, then then we're properly in business. But so it looks like, yeah, that they'll try and it will sort of get dropped off at some point by uh, Perseverance, probably in about sixty days, and then it then it's got thirty one days to go off and and fly around um, Mars and see if it survives. It's going to be, it's it's possibly so we're 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 sort of a month or two months away from one of the coolest things that's ever happened, and that is the first aircraft to fly on an alien world. I'm I'm surprised they didn't call it call it the the Kitty Hawk or something like that. Yeah, last few weeks I've been a bit down on on NASA names because I I just think they're a little bit boring. I noticed I noticed. Uh, because you and I discussed Chinese names a few episodes mm, ago. Beautiful. And I the noticed then you, you went into the same with, with Harriet. Yeah. And I'm I'm totally into that though. I just think I just think I think the Elon Musk naming system's pretty good. The puns. And, and the Electron one as well. I, 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 I rather I prefer the naming that Rocket Labs is using. I yeah. really like their naming. Yeah, it's good. That yeah. that's also that's also good. But I, I assume as well that they they must have been inspired by SpaceX. I guess if you're a private company, it's quite fun to name them silly things, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. When you're when you're more on the let's say of government side, there are even committees on selecting names. Well, a lot of these go up for competitions, don't they? It's like, oh, it's a school's competition to name NASA's rover. Oh, it's called Perseverance. Well, surely. <laughs> Surely school kids didn't come up with perseverance. It sounds very much like a NASA name to me. In fact, anyway. but for instance, Ariane, mm-hmm. um, it was decided there's still somewhere the document of the, it was like a piece of a paper table napkin where they were drafting names and then one of them was Ariane and they selected that. Mm-hmm. It's a funny story. Maybe I should bring it for another episode. Yeah. By yeah, the way, you... since I'm mentioning Ariane, um, well, Oh yeah, Persevere, actually, there is big. Yeah, yeah. Persevere will collect samples, and there is a multinational mission to bring those samples back. And mm. ESA is building the the Earth Return Orbiter that would would launch on Ariane Six in a few years to bring those samples back to Earth, and that would be the first the first uh, sample return, return from Mars yeah. ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's massive. Uh, by humans. Absolutely. By humans. Yeah. We don't know how many uh, meteorites have fallen into our planet that came originally from Mars. No, but I mean, yeah, the, the fact that you've got geologists guiding Perseverance to do some coring. Yeah, because that's the big difference between Perseverance and Curiosity. Perseverance sort of grinds it up and sticks it into a into a, into an analysis machine on its back, whereas Perseverance cores it and leaves it on the ground ready for collection to go back to Earth where you can do loads more science. I mean, it might be, I mean, it genuinely might be the most exciting moment ever when, you know, specifically chosen cores come back to Earth. Yeah, we're talking, we're talking a long way from now, a couple of years. Yeah, it is a long way, isn't it? Yeah. 
where they would it's, it's a decade, you know, it's decades, isn't it, that we're talking, and it, and it's going to, but Mars sample returns big. But there's also some missions on the cards for Phobos sample return as well. Anyway, shall we shall we uh, shall we listen to to uh, Gary Martin? Yes. He has worked at NASA for a very long time. Starts off with microgravity and then into space architecture and eventually also in the in the parts on at NASA Ames Center and all the part dealing with partnerships with the technology companies out there that are not necessarily connected to space. He was there in Silicon Valley when this whole space commercialization new space was happening. A big part of new space is thanks to the NASA Ames Center and Pete Warden. He mentions Pete Warden as well and the work that he did with the companies in Silicon Valley to connect them to space. Yeah. And while while Gary was at at, uh, Vision for Space Exploration, the development of that for the Bush administration, he got the Outstanding Leadership Medal. So NASA obviously... uh, (laughs) <laughs> saw the value of of Gary's work so and then he's um was seconded by NASA to the International Space University which is where we, we which is where we met we met um same year 2005 I think uh, I was ending my master's studies in Strasbourg and this is when Gary moved there with his family and this is when we met he's one of my one of my mentors I I appreciate Gary a lot I heard so many stories of all these things uh, from NASA and and his ideas, and I thought it would be great candidate to interview for the show. Even without this this huge NASA career that he's had, if it was just the, his involvement with the Luxembourg Ministry of uh, of the Economy. Economy helping to set up the Luxembourg Space Agency, and we hear about Luxembourg. A lot. A lot, considering what a small country is, but we hear about it a lot in space. And he was very important with with the Luxembourg Space Agency. And he's very proud, he says in this interview, of the European Space Resources Innovation Centre, ESRIC, as well, that he's helped set up. So, yeah, his his whole career is about sustainable exploration and development of space. So you'll you'll hear his kind of dream. Essentially... Going going all the way from microgravity research and human spaceflight all the way to space resources and and how to how to get an ecosystem that pulls its own weight that to to bring space expansion to become self-sustaining in a way i'm glad you said expanse because if if humankind goes on to uh use space like as portrayed in the amazon <laughs> program the expanse gary would be a pretty influential person of how that happened right now the epstein is the guy that designs the engine but yeah he would be up there there should be a nod to gary martin in one of the lunar colonies there like i noticed quite a few astronauts in the background there so anyway shall we shall we shall we listen to gary uh, interview yes please Akutai. the interplanetary podcast is alive welcome to the podcast gary I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. Great to have you on. I'll ask a quick question about Perseverance and the landing this week. What What were your thoughts on that? Uh, what a, it's it's quite a feat. I mean, people don't realize how complex it is and how far away Mars is and how difficult it is. I mean, they see people being um, successful at these very complex tasks, but a lot goes behind it. And um, 
And it's going to be an exciting mission as it starts. Some of the things it's going to look at are really going to open up uh, new books for us, understanding the possibility of life on Mars and how it evolved. NASA seems to have it under control. Oh, NASA, yeah, it's an amazing uh, yeah. landing that they do. However, when I was a space architect, I was pushing very hard that they not land it the way that they do, that they land it the way that they would have humans land someday. And I doubt that this, uh, the way that they do this would be the way we land with humans, though I could be wrong. I, you know, when we looked at um, how it would be done, we wanted to have as much data about bringing down these large, um, heavy payloads uh, in a way that a human could survive and not have too much uh, risk. And um, the science people say, well, that costs too much. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the sky crane to me just looks like the most crazy piece of engineering that you would have, you know, whoever came up with that concept first of all must have been a little bit embarrassed to show the boss. But it, presumably. but it works. It works. You know, before that, when I, again, when we were looking at how we were landing on Mars before that, we were landing in a big bouncing ball, and I said. We're not doing that with humans. <laughs> However, I did see a movie where they uh, kind of visualize that. <laughs> oh, wow. so. That would certainly be a fun fun way of landing. Yeah, it would be. It, de definitely a fun, a fun way. way yeah. It's bouncing around. You don't know where you're going to end up. <laughs> Before we get onto the space architect, I did actually want to ask you the, the question about, because I noticed that you started your NASA career in the 90s uh, as an expert in, in microgravity, that that was your... Uh, that was your area of 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 expertise. So how 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 did you how did you get there? How did you get to be the microgravity guy? So um, that was pretty interesting. I actually started as a student intern in '85 at NASA uh, at the Goddard Institute of Space Studies in Manhattan. But I went to school at Langley Research Center and got my master's uh, in astronautics. And for your master's, you had to pick something you do for your master's thesis. And my master's thesis was on creating a uh, robotic spacecraft uh, for microgravity experiments. In order to do that, I had to understand what, what a microgravity experiment, what, what were the class of experiments, fluids and combustion. And We were doing, um, you know, development of um, metallic crystals and things like that in space. And because I did that, I learned how uh, structures in space, you know, people don't realize you say microgravity on the space station. You think, wow, that must be really still and things I can't do on the surface. But because things like especially uh, spacecraft with humans, there's a lot of compressors, there's a lot of moving machinery. You have to move the air all the time because if there's a fire, uh, the smoke won't go to the fire detectors. So you're, it's like an airplane. You've got to keep moving air. And so that creates a lot of vibration. So people don't realize that even though the space station has a very low microgravity at the steady state, it has very high at upper, upper frequencies. So we created, um, when we were selling the space station, that we were going to do all this amazing microgravity. We're going to cure cancer. We're going to get insights into physics that we never were going to get. And these, this is how we sold it in the late 80s and the early 90s when I was part of the microgravity group. Um, 
And so we said, well, but in order to do that, we need to have this pristine environment. And so I was uh, part of the, I was part of the uh, design of the space station for microgravity experiments. And in the, the way that we designed the space station, we had the engineers and systems engineers doing the space station design. But then we had people like me and I was called a user. And we were constantly fighting for our requirements. And so I had to uh, show them why we needed certain requirements. And we had this microgravity curve that they were supposed to build a station to, but quite frankly, um, they didn't have enough money to do that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I mean, cause it's very hard. You know, there's a lot of techniques from super quiet submarines that keep down vibrations. You know, like if you have a fluid in a, in a pipe going one way, right on attached to that pipe, you have fluid going the other way. And so they were constantly had to design and every, everything that moved had a grommet around it, you know, around every screw. And so that all these vibrations could be uh, absorbed uh, and you could get the environment you needed for these very delicate experiments. And they, um, you know, they looked at it and they tried hard but it was, for one thing, space designers, space engineers did not have any experience at all in making quiet spacecraft. They, I mean, it just wasn't something that was even taught, you know. So they, um, I had to, I brought in <laughs> experts and told them. Then finally, one day, they were so frustrated because we had all these big meetings about requirements and, you know, you had to write RIDs and you had to argue for you what you really needed and why you needed it. But I made one of the uh, designers, lead designers, so angry with me one day. He said, you're going to get it and you're going to like it the way it is. That's, that's <laughs> what it's going to be. <laughs> but the bottom line is, um, as the station cost went up, uh, especially in the late 90s, they absorbed all our research program. Uh, and now... The life science part persisted because they needed to understand how to keep people living and healthy in space. But, you know, all our big furnaces and all most of the real microgravity works done in by the European Space Agency and their and by JAXA and their modules, because our furnaces we had, you know, I forget my run out budget was in the billions of big furnace modules and big fluid and combustion modules that were going to do some amazing. And we'd created this research in order to, what people don't realize is that NASA created planetary scientists, for instance, people who studied planets and understand planetary atmospheres and all that was all created by money that NASA put out into the universities and created this whole class of people who who now had all these, who could study these planets. And, and, and so they had researchers and things like that. So we were doing the same thing for microgravity. We were, we were putting out, since I joined in the late 80s, um, the microgravity group in 88, they, um, we were uh, facilitating graduate students. Uh, we were getting peer-reviewed uh, science of you know, very low temperature activities that we could do in space that you can't do on the ground. And, and like I said, we were growing crystals and we were doing uh, levitated uh, metal melts and looking at super crystallization and 
all kinds of uh, really cool physics data. But, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, that money all went to keep the, to make the station <laughs> successful. So Why? it was really a rough period of time. So I actually moved to the science area at that time. It seems to be a recurrent topic, the contest for the budget between the science side of NASA and of, of the month's crewed spaceflight. It seemed like there was, we always had a pattern that the first things that went, so I was the, uh, one of my jobs was the head of advanced programs at the microgravity group. So we designed what the facilities would be and we were doing the research at the different centers so that when the space station was up, we would take a big fluid facility up and we'd take a big furnace facility up and we had all these. So all that was in my budget. And so we were studying all that activity, of course, it, we were building smaller versions for the shuttle. And so we were doing a lot of shuttle experiments to keep this research community going. But again, when they took all the money from the big facilities, took all the money from the research uh, community. And right now, I don't really know the status of the microgravity research committee community, but um, I have a feeling that it's not much there. I mean, there's people who still are looking at the phenomena and are working on the facilities that were put up by, um, by the Europeans and by the Japanese. And, and, and the U.S. has rights to those, but it's not the kind of large community we had built. If they didn't take the money, we wouldn't have a space station. <laughs> so it's not like I can blame them. Because I guess if you ask the general public, what, what's the point of a space station? What, what's the, what's the what's the unique thing that it has? I, I guess they would think that, that the microgravity would be just about the the sort of most unique thing for having a laboratory in there. Yes, uh, but actually, like I was trying to say in the beginning, that having humans around microgravity experiments is an optimum, unless you absolutely have to have a human to manage the experiment while you're doing it. Um, but most of them can be automated. What I think the space station showed is that all the all these um, that the space station is there now and it's safe. Uh, that's unbelievable. I mean, and that humans can create this environment uh, and this laboratory in space over long periods of time and sustain it. Uh, we're talking about complexity of landing on the Mars. Well, the complexity of the space station must be orders of magnitude more. Uh, the systems and trying to keep people alive and over time on the surface, you don't build a car that's going to last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, you, without any, you know, without going to a service station or expecting, you know, you, you, you can always fix it. You can put it up on a rack and take it apart and put it back together. Planes, you know, are constantly being reassembled. But here we got this in space station. You know, we have you can't do the kind of things you do with machinery on the ground. So, it's a unbelievable engineering feat, and it will go down in history books forever, as that these humans got together and these countries got together. I was going to say that in terms of the countries getting together, presumably the orders of magnitude complexity sort of increases quite dramatically when you've got a Russian module and a Japanese module and a European module, then everyone's presumably doing things slightly differently. <laughs> and the U.S. wouldn't go to metric. I, I, I fought this so hard because in the science community, in the microgravity science community, we were all metric. Everything, you know, the scientists are metric. And, but the engineers in NASA were not. And um, even later when I was a space architect and having studies done at all different centers, um, 
I demanded that the that the reports be done and the studies be done in metric. And this was when the U.S. was trying to be metric uh, towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s. I mean, there was actually a law saying we're going to go metric. And I can't tell you how many angry engineers I would have coming at. So, you know, we'll do a, we'll do a soft metric, meaning that they would put in parentheses, uh, you know, and they would round and that they said we can't afford. One of their reasoning is we can't afford to retool. Uh, you know, all our machines and all our tools are in. But if you don't change it, you know, here was an opportunity. They could change it before they actually started bending metal. But they said that was one of them. The other one is that uh, I would get all the time is that I don't, as an engineer, I don't understand metric. I don't get the feeling. I don't understand what they mean. These, I know what uh, thrust is and I, and English, and I know, uh, but I don't understand Newton's, uh, and and that's all true. I, I kind of have to agree with them, Gary. If if I would have to go to Imperial, I would be completely lost. Yeah, I mean, so I I, I understood their issue. It's just that when do you ever change, or do you not? So the interesting things I would get into uh, concerns about was that on the space station there are two sets of tools. There's a set of tools that are English for the for the U.S. parts. And there's and then everything else is metric, and so there's tools for metric. So, if you're in an emergency situation, you know you are you near the right toolbox. Uh, you know there's it's unnecessary complexity uh, that and I, as an engineer I don't like complexity, so I I don't couldn't understand why we had bought into this. But uh, there's a you can go in and guess about different reasons, but. Uh, no, I told you the two that they told me. One is I didn't understand what it really meant on these these tool uh, these these different units, and the other one was that they would need to buy different tools. And some of these tools are quite expensive. You know, if you're building these big modules and you're uh, welding these big uh, circular pieces together, you'd have to. Though I don't, you know, I don't really know the details, but it seemed to me they could have done it. I would have expected having all these countries together that. The engineering and the science would have been the easy part, and the decision making would have been the complicated one. Yeah, the politics. I think that's a lot of it too. Uh, I think it always will be. Well, but uh, it has worked. It's an, it's amazing the way how how nice the space station has worked out. I am I am always surprised that uh, it is so healthy and that they are able to do so much on it, and they're learning much more and more and more. You know. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if you wanted me to talk about when I was a space architect, but I had a number of, uh, issues in that, that the space station. So I was, I had two jobs before I, well, I had a job before two jobs before I was a space architect. I was ahead of all the advanced programs for human spaceflight. So we did all the, um, next generation launch vehicles and we were doing the, you know, what, what kind of suits you could use on the moon. And, and I was leading these studies that we couldn't talk about in public um, that were, that finally ended up as being the vision for space exploration uh, under the Bush administration. But the, under Clinton, they did not want us showing that we were doing studies showing that humans could go to the moon and go to Mars and that, we were doing actual technology and we, we got quite a lot of money to do special technological studies. Um, 
And we started whole new areas of technology development within NASA uh, due to the studies we were doing uh, that would give us the ability that someday humans could go to the moon and someday they would go to Mars. Because quite frankly, we didn't have in-space propulsion uh, at the end of the 90s. And, you know, things like you definitely need to get around in space and things because it wasn't something you needed to go to low Earth orbit. Uh, and it wasn't part of our architecture. Uh, so, but we did get a lot of new things uh, started and, and the station. So when, I'm, when I go to a meeting, uh, once a week we'd have a meeting. So I, I had all the advanced programs. So I'm sitting next to the space shuttle guy. He runs all the space shuttles. I'm sitting next to the space station guy and he runs all the space stations. And then there was a woman who ran all the expendable launch vehicles. And that was all our group. And we also, the way NASA was set up at the time, we ran centers that were, so we had Johnson and Kennedy and Marshall uh and and some of the test centers and so we that was our man so we were the management group and i would get uh animated or whatever you want to say i because they would show when we had our monthly re, uh meetings the shuttle would show that it's always going to be a shuttle out to 2030 at the time so we're talking around 2000 so for another 30 years the shuttle is going to run and the space station is going off the chart at 2030. And then I'm supposed to be able to carve out a program that we could do these other things, like go to the moon. And there's no money for it. There's no, I mean, there's literally, to actually build the systems that you would need, there's no way you could do it as long as the space station and space shuttle were never going away. And you know, there's whole industries around these big engineering feats as, as it is about anything. And they are very happy doing it forever because there's always something new you could do. But you're not going to do the next system that would get, allow you to land on the moon. And so um, we were pushing really hard for that. And you asked me earlier uh, about uh, Columbia. So when Columbia happened, a horrible thing, um, we had to assess, one, were we going to finish the space station? Was the shuttle safe enough? Because all the pieces that were still on the ground needed to go up, and they were all made for the shuttle bay. And we had uh, three shuttles left, and we knew we didn't, we, we had kind of made a decision we weren't going to build any more shuttles. They're not necessarily the best design to go forward. Um, and so we... Uh, first had to, uh, some of our scenarios where we'll just take up the pieces in the shuttles and then we'll just scuttle the shuttle and have it f come into the ocean the, of the, and they would all be animated, you know, they wouldn't, they'd all be with no humans on them because we, we kept finding, um, issues, safety issues as we looked harder and harder, uh, at the shuttles. Uh, and so we were wondering that. And then the next thing is that, well, uh, how do we, you know, what do we do with the shuttle? How do, I mean, how do, how, what do we do with the space, space station? We had already made all these agreements and things like, and things were already, you know, moving. And uh, it was just at the very early age, we were just starting to see all the capability and all the cool things that we we're going to get out of the space station. At that point, you are, you were already the NASA's. I was the space architect. The space architect, yes. 
I think I was, I was a space architect in 2002. Columbia happened soon after that in February of 2003. Then we went full into a new initiative in 2004 when the president said that we were going to go to the moon and Mars to stay, which was amazing. People didn't realize that that actually NASA was not authorized to do anything about the moon and Mars till uh, President Bush put his directive forward in 2004. But the whole thing is, if you looked at that directive, and if you look back at the budget at that time when, when it came out, the space station, we had recommend the space station not be, that the U.S. not be a, uh, what would you call it, anchor tenant of the space station past 2015. Because I had gone to the human spaceflight people and said, look, what is your roadmap for humans going to Mars? Because we had our eyes on Mars. We were going to go to the moon first, but we, we, we really wanted to go to Mars. Uh, we wanted humans to go maybe by 2018 uh, at the time, or maybe a little bit later, certainly before 2030. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't have any of the systems like we were talking earlier. It takes a long time to v- develop. And so we, if you look at the budget at the time, we were, not, we were going to reclaim a lot of money in, in 2016. And that money was going to go towards deep space systems for humans like the gateway thing uh, that you hear now or landing systems for the moon. You know, these are quite expensive and would take a lot of study. And, and uh, when, when you were mentioning the NASA stopping being the anchor tenant of the space station by 2015, yes. what was the plan? Give it to the other partners? Was the plan to commercialize it, private, privatize? We looked at, I, I had hoped that it would be privatized and, um, and maybe commercialized, but you know the thing is, when you really look at it, it's too expensive. The station wasn't built to be commercially viable or given to a private company. It just—if you're going to do that, there's better. You know, Axiom has some good ideas. Bigelow had a great idea. Bigelow used NASA uh, technology for his inflatables. That was technology that was within my portfolio when I was uh, head of human uh, advanced programs. That was the plan, but. Again, as it's so typical in NASA or large engineering feats that once you have something, it has a lobbyist group around it, it has big industry around it, and there's a lot of momentum. You have to figure out how to move that momentum in a way that those people keep working and they're still looking towards the next thing, but it's a lot less uh, risky to keep something going than to build something brand new. And so this has always been an issue. Um, that's one reason I would say that we've been in low Earth orbit for so long, because then it's harder to go to deep space and it's there's a lot more to do. And then there's a lot of lobbyists and uh, momentum behind doing what we are doing. I remember uh, right after we got the president to have this directive uh, that we were going to go to uh, the moon and Mars, uh, the vision for space exploration, I went around to all the NASA centers, explain, you know, thinking, you know, wow, this is what everyone joined NASA for. We're finally going to go back to the moon to stay and we're going to go to Mars. Everyone's going to be really happy about this. And so I, I went to each of the centers and had big, uh, you know, 
the the largest auditoriums and then was taped and I would tell about what our plan was. And I had so much negativity. So many people didn't want to do that. Uh, and so and it actually shocked me. People didn't want to stop doing what they were doing. And everyone, all up and down the line of NASA, because you could see if you're going to go to the moon in Mars, there's going to be a lot of money involved. And everyone was worried about their thing they were working on and didn't want to stop were it. Worried about, worried about their piece of yes. pie. And there was, um, at the time, I remember I had some real people angry at Marshall because they were building this um, new spacecraft you know, that would just go from the ground to the, to the space station. And, and it was just a, a smaller craft. It was like an elevator. In fact, the, hum, the humans in it couldn't do things. You couldn't go out and, and fix a satellite, for instance. You, there was no air. Um, you couldn't airlock where you could go outside. There was all this. And it was a very expensive new vehicle. And as the space architect, it was not part of our architecture. Uh, it, was, it was something that the people who build uh, spacecraft wanted to do. And, <laughs> and it was really hard to actually um, to kind of uh, stop that effort. Because you, you would think that all of these things can be centrally planned, but at the end of the day, NASA, the different states, different interests, that old place always, right? Yes, and that's and you were asked, asked me earlier why there isn't a space architect, because that was my job. My job was to manage the group. We had about 70 people from each of the centers who who did our, we did systems analysis studies, and then we made recommendations. We didn't build, well, we did some hardware just to show that you could do certain things. Uh, but um, they didn't want that anymore after... Uh, after we reorganized NASA uh, and we put an exploration group together, they didn't, I was trying to get the scientists to work with the exploration group so that, you know, that they would marry, you know, everyone's got their own little piece of the pie and, and they feel threatened if they're not in, you know, total control. And so that would be, I would say the main reason there isn't a space architect any longer. There was only me. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, so you're the only ever NASA space architect. The first, the first and the last. The last. So are you a little bit disappointed that there isn't a space architect? Are you, do you think that 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 one is actually required? They um, they tried another way to do it after I left. They had a systems engineering group uh, at the very top because see, I was I worked directly for the deputy uh, administrator and was in on. You know, so we're all up, I'm in the top offices in the main place. And so we would meet every morning and we kept kept appraised of, of what each of us was was working on that time. And so I was the only the, the systems guy looking at new, uh, new initiatives and things that we were doing. Uh, they took a group and they made a systems engineering group that was supposed to do the same thing. It was different and it only lasted a couple of years. There's nothing that has actually taken the place of it. I actually think you need, whether you agree with the um, the architecture designs and things. I mean, the you need kind of a, a central place that brings everything together. You know, like the science of the 
of Mars, uh, you know, is connected directly to the human, the future human exploration. And I think they are doing some of that now. It's certainly a lot more than it was when I was there. I mean, just from what I read. Um, Watching some old documentaries, and by the way you describe it, I get the impression that Werner von Braun was sort of the the first, at least in spirit, space architect. I, for I had his architecture on my wall, and up on the up in the administrator suite. I mean, yes, I always because he had an architecture. He had dates. He had a schedule. He was going to go to the moon. Then he was going to, and we were following actually his. You know, if you watch two thousand one, their journey to the moon is his architecture. And if you look at what they're trying to do now, which I don't actually agree with, but they they built a space station. But see, that's and that they left from that space. They go from Earth to the space station to another station around the moon, which would be Gateway. And then you go down to the moon and you can go to different places on the moon. But um, that we're still kind of doing Von Braun. He was it's a nice architecture because you've got but. We kind of messed it up um, when we didn't do our station, when we changed the inclination of our station to be to accommodate Russia, because now it doesn't work so well for the moon. Uh, you still have to do a bit of a plane change and you lose a lot of capability. Because the current orbit, of course, is so that the Soyuz could also yes. dock. And yeah. if we didn't do that, we would have been in a lot of trouble when we lost the shuttle. You know, so I mean, the Russians saved the space station for a long time. In hindsight, it was an it really had a great result by doing good change. But but having the art, original architecture where you'd use the station as a as a station as a a place you would start your trips to the moon doesn't make sense now. No, it's better just to go direct. I guess it does show the sort of the reason why you have multiple systems to get up to the space station yeah. and things like that, doesn't it? That, that you, you're not relying on one system is a disaster. No, and the redundancy is, is uh, really important. And, and, and most, in all of human spaceflight, uh, you know, you need redundant systems and you have to have systems that aren't alike. It's not like you have two systems that are the same. It's two systems that are different that do the same capability. If we're everywhere, you can do that. So that if one system fails you have another way to do it, you know, because uh, if you, if one system fails, the other one might if it's the exact same design. Exactly. You don't want, you don't, you want the risk that it's the same root cause right. yes. that would ground the other system as yes, well. You are. I, I can imagine the relief from all ISS partners uh, after the SpaceX yeah. success. Yes. To have the two, now the two systems working. It's great. It really is. It, plus, it's the big... Big area. I don't. I don't know how much um, you want to talk about Luxembourg, uh, but I uh, let me let me tell you a story, and and maybe that brings it all together. <laughs> so, I was I was uh, 14 when they landed on the moon, and I I read a lot of science fiction like we all did, and I love I love the idea that someday I'm. We were all told in the 60s that we would be working and living on the moon, or at least could be visiting there. That was just an expectation that never has happened. So when I joined NASA and actually got into the position where I could have something to say about our schedule and our systems and going in that direction, I was just in heaven. Uh, and one of the studies I had done uh, was um, 
to look at how do you sustain a long-term architecture that's obviously got to go across many political changes uh, and and funding and all kinds of things that are going to happen over decades. How how do you make it successful? And one of the uh, the studies that came back said they they had this chart and they showed a positive feedback loop if people were making money, if it was a growing economic concern. So actually, that's what I spent the last part of my career trying to do is help companies get started. And so, uh, because that would give stability to exploration development of space, which is what I'm really wanted to see in my career. One of the things uh, when I was working at Ames as the head of partnerships, transferring technology and doing agreements, helping companies get started and helping companies with NASA technology and our, and our programs like SBIR that help, they give money for new technology from small companies. And NASA has a lot of really great com- um, com- uh, ways to help companies get started. So one of the things that uh, we were doing is um, if you really extend that and you really are looking at trying to make money in space, well, the first thing you come down to is using the materials in space to make everything you need while you're up there. So that's space resources. So one of the things I worked with, uh, Pete Warden was the head of the, the center director and I was the head of partnerships and we both shared the same uh, dream of people going and working in space. And we decided that we would start, um, there's some issues about uh, creating, you know, uh, if you're, you're right, it's probably a whole new thing, but there's some issues about doing things in space with the Outer Space Treaty. You might've already talked about it with some people and there's some, and some areas that you really need to, um, to kind of start fleshing out because they're going to take many, many years to work out directly. So we had a workshop at, at, um, at, uh, at Ames and the workshop was on looking, uh, it's called the economics of NEOs. So we were staying away from the moon because it was too much of a, a third rail and we were going to use the resources from, from asteroids. And during that time, uh, both Pete and I worked with the International Space University, and we had been in Strasbourg. And uh, Pete had been introduced to um, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister of Luxembourg. And at the time, Luxembourg was very interested in looking at ways to diversify its eco- its economy, and because it was mostly in the financial area, and it really wanted to have some stability of its own going out. And it didn't mind having very long-term visionary goals. And because in Luxembourg, the, the company SES was such a success and was really uh, uh, made everyone in Luxembourg feel a little bit like they're part of the space activity because SES is a space communication company. The, um, they were willing to look at new areas. And through a, a number of uh, people who came to our workshop, uh, including the deputy prime minister and his entourage, they were very interested in looking at this space resources area. And they brought even actually the head of finance and things like that, uh, minister of finance. They 
they went back and did studies of their own to see was was this a real thing? Uh, is it is it just science fiction? Could you really make money off of selling fuel in space and making bases and th- all these things that are way out in science fiction? And they came back and said it was very credible for what they could do because you could do things along the line. And so uh, when I retired from NASA, they asked me if I would come and work for the Ministry of the Economy. And they wanted to create this sustainable space, uh, commercial space ecosystem in Luxembourg. And they had created a really wonderful um, uh, strategy where they they made sure they had the political people behind them. They passed laws. They made sure that they could go um, treat some of the issues with the Outer Space Treaty with their with their adjacent company uh, countries who had the same ideas. And then the area I was helping in, uh, they didn't actually have space taught at their university in Luxembourg. They they wanted to have a new space curriculum to feed talent into this um, uh new community they were creating as they were trying to bring new companies in. And then they uh, they do things at their research centers to help the companies work on their hard problems. They partner with them. And then they actually created a fund so to give the companies funds. And they did all these things uh, and started asking, showing that Luxembourg is a great place for a new space company to come to, probably one of the unique places on the earth who was just really all in trying to help these companies get started. I think one of the last times we saw each other in person was for this space resources training course in, in yeah, Luxembourg. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that you organized. Or well, my group did, in- yeah. Well, and ISU was part of that. I remember there was also a sort of uh, Luxembourg new space companies gathering right after. Remember we went there together? Yeah. I was I was certainly impressed at the number of just new space or startups in Luxembourg. It's and now it's even probably double. Made in space, for instance, had an office in they Luxembourg. They still do. A number of the uh, companies are connected with ISU actually. ISU and Luxembourg are connected. That the course you went to was a joint um, Colorado School of Mines. Luxembourg and ISU course. It was uh, very well done. And they're doing that again this year too. Because they've cha- they've staked out this, this idea that if they have companies that can work with these space resources, they have created a new research center, first of its kind, uh, by a country that uh, is called the European Space Resources Innovation Center, ESRIC. And they just started it a couple of months ago. And this will have big facilities that um, companies who want to try out um, things in a big dirty vac, you know, take lunar simulant and do uh, industrial processes with it to show that you can make everything you need in space or get it out of it. Uh, There's not many facilities around the world that can do that on a large scale. And that so they've created that in Luxembourg now, and it's part of the European uh, ESA is part of it, and uh, I'm really proud about that. We we started that whole idea while I was there. That and the school are the things I worked on. Yeah, I think they they're doing a great job. It's it is the future. In a way, space resources, it sort of loops back to that position of 
space architect yes. because as you said if you can make money yes. there that that will just pull the cart and that will help create that space infrastructure and art architecture that is needed for going further right that's my that, that's my story i ever since i learned that that you needed to make money in space i spent i spent a lot of my time trying to help companies get started and then when luxembourg came along and really said i'm going to create this community and i'm going to and we're going to focus on space resources uh that was perfect i really uh am energized by what they're doing and really impressive Like you said, even though a lot of the companies aren't necessarily space resources companies right now, uh, but they are doing space activities. Whenever I see Luxembourg mentioned, it's it's normally to do with the law of like space law. Is is that you know are, are, is that because they're incentivized to change things like the, the the outer space treaty and things like that because they want to carve out a position for themselves? Well, it's well, I would first say it's not just Luxembourg. You know, it's the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and Artemis Accords, and uh, there's a lot of people who want to do things in space, want to figure out how to do it under an interpretation of the Outer Space Treaty without changing the treaty, because there's other things in the treaty you don't want to really open it up again, like having um, weapons of mass destruction in space and things. No one wants to renegotiate something that we all agree on. And so there's a lot of reluctance about that, but There are certain uh, legal interpretations of the Outer Space Treaty that would allow you to, well, if you read the, I don't know if you guys have had a, a session on the Hague Working Group, which was uh, a group of country, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 people from all over the world working on this issue. It was sponsored by the Netherlands and Luxembourg. They worked for over a year, I think, maybe it was two years, and they created here the what they call the the Hague building blocks and that and this and then what they are is an interpretation of the how you can make money in space or how you could could use resources in space really without violating the treaty but you know we do that on the ground we do that here uh you ships go out into the deep ocean away from all the countries and fish all the time and so that's the commons and they they are able to do that because they pay taxes to whatever country they They're flagged, and that country stands up for them and makes sure that they're following all the right rules and they're not destroying the resources and things like that. Now, that's similar to something that, that may or may not happen. Hopefully, it does on the moon, where you're not, you can't claim a fishing right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You can't say, This is my part of the ocean. I can fish here and no one else. That's, that's definitely illegal, and no one's going to let you do it. Same thing on the moon. You can't say this crater is mine, this water uh, here in this crater is mine, and no one else can mine it. But if you go there with your company and you mine that water, you would be allowed to sell it. And so that's, you know, that's kind of the theory. Uh, and you might have other people on here who can tell you quite much more detail about one way or another. But the... Um, The main idea is that if you really are going to develop space and explore it and people are going to do it in a sustainable way, we are going to have to deal with these, these uh, issues. But Luxembourg does have companies that are doing space resources. There's a company there that makes solar arrays out of, out of the lunar regolith. 
However, now they're making money by making solar arrays out of desert sand uh, and companies are paying, or people are paying them to do that. And so, and there are, there's a, there's a rover company, iSpace, a Japanese company, but they do the, some of the rover research in Luxembourg. And so there are some companies, in, in the beginning, there was a company that, um, there's a couple of companies, Deep Space Industries uh, was, and Planetary Resources were two companies that were um, making their business case from making fuel from asteroids. I mean, I'm just sitting here because because I just can't get I can't get over how much stuff you've done. As in, you, you must feel as though your career you've like you said you've you've gone from from being someone who watched the moon landings to being someone who's actually dictating yeah. the kind of architecture of 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 where everything's going. So that that must that must, you must be pretty pretty proud of that as a career. The, the best part was I worked with some amazing people. You know, the people the reason that I was able to do what I was able to do was because I was allowed to um get some of the the best minds of NASA, which was amazing because everyone wanted to work on it. You know, everyone wanted to go back to the moon and Mars. At least that's what I thought. I told you the other story where I was surprised yeah. that <laughs> people outside my little group <laughs> I didn't feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I guess, I guess that the world's full of engineers, scientists, explorers, and I guess, I guess you must have been falling in the in the explorer category when you're sitting there trying to think of all the things that you can that 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 you want to be doing. It was so amazing. I enjoy. I had a great career, and I I have a great great time right now. With I don't know if you've been connected with the International Space University. I'm sure that Julio has told you about it. Hopefully. Um, Yep, <laughs> I mention it from time to time. It's yes. full yes. of these people. It is amazing. Are, by the way, you are currently the vice president of I, of the of ISIS. Yes, so I'm I'm really happy because I'm still around all these amazing people, and they're all full of energy, and they all have got ideas, and they all are focused on doing things that have never been done before in space, and so uh, that's that's why. People used to ask me about what I really liked about being at NASA, and I said it's it's because I get to spend my life doing working on projects that humans haven't done before, and that we're and every time we find every time we do something like what's going to happen now that we're on Perseverance is on the moon, I mean on Mars, that we're going to find so many new mysteries, uh, you know, every time. And think of if. if if humans are on the moon, just walking around through the lunar cave, the lava tubes and things, we're going to see things we never saw, new new minerals that can't be that were never on Earth before because the conditions are quite different there, and the capabilities are are limitless. I I love it. It's just really going to help humans. <laughs> I always think that. I always my favorite is the, is the is the idea of Galileo looking through a telescope wow. and seeing. Seeing Saturn's rings for the first time and being the first person to do so, and it's like that's it. You can you can sort of rest now and go. I've done something that's just no no humans done before. And I guess yeah, working at NASA or or going to the ISU and working with amazing people and working on stuff that's yeah. That, who could not be enthused about that's how like yeah that. absolutely. So that's how I met Julio. <laughs> he helped me move my furniture. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> you volunteered uh so ever yeah. since we've known each other for a long time 
Well, Gary, you, you have been a you you have been a very important mentor for me. Oh, I really appreciate that. You too. I learn a lot from you. <laughs> I do. Matthew, uh, it's great to meet you. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's been it's been fascinating. Uh, uh, Julio, you have to get Gary on again. There's, there's, I've got too many questions. We have so many, so many more questions for you, Gary, for another okay. time. Okay, well, uh, I'd be happy. Yeah, you can. Yeah, okay. I, I love talking about it. <laughs> My wife doesn't want to hear it anymore, so it's great. Talk. Yeah, I know. I know how that feels. <laughs> great. Thanks Thank very you. much, Gary. Thanks, Gary. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space there we go i did enjoy that i did enjoy that julio immensely i'm glad you did i'm glad you did. and and like i said he has a ton of other stories to tell that i'm sure will be very interesting I, I i want to kind of drill down into each little section i'd love to i'd love to know more about that that era the, the era where he's space architect and and the demise of the space shuttle and and that era i think's clearly a massive pivotal moment in in the history of NASA, isn't it? Yeah, I would be interested as well to to have more detail on what happens when you change a president. What's going on behind the curtains at the, in places like NASA? And hmm. It's not like a new president can come and you start everything from scratch. It means that during the time of presidents that might not be so supportive of space exploration, you still have to keep working and preparing technological, I don't know, building blocks, sort of Legos, so that when... Hmm. When a new president comes, a new decision maker comes with another idea, you you are NASA and you can say, okay, I'm ready. Here we go. We can go in this new direction. Uh, I would be interested as well to next time maybe to to dig more into the Obama administration part, mm. the cancellation of the shuttle, and how that played into this whole architecture. That's it. That's that. That's that for the week. A massive shout out to the patrons. I massively enjoyed our little patreon uh get together we need to do that more often so i had a lovely time very very cool people very 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 cool people so if you want to join in uh just whiz over to www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary or or if you if you i'll tell you what be really good is if you listen on itunes or if you listen somewhere else just leave us a nice review that'd be really nice if that's what you want to do i'd love a five-star review i haven't had haven't had someone review us for a while it's so very difficult to get a review in a podcast. We've got some ace, lots and lots of great reviews. I just haven't asked for it for a while. I tell you what, but um, yeah, if someone leaves us a pod, a, a review, maybe we can do something nice for them. If people leave a review, I'll call out their name on the next podcast, and if they email me, I will send them an interplanetary podcast mug. Fair enough. I was more going for your voice in their voicemail. <laughs> Saying something, <laughs> saying something interesting. Saying something. What you're saying that no one wants an interplanetary podcast mug. No, 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 for sure. <laughs> but a proper professional voice like yours. Hello. Yeah. Yeah, that kind like of a thing. movie trailer yeah. type, uh, or, or an ASMR type thing. I don't know what ASMR means. It's that thing you know on on the internet where people listen to people just talking and maybe like just. That. What does it mean? It's a weird thing that people do on the internet. It's like it's it's for some people. It's it a weird of, thing that people do on the internet. Describes ninety five percent of the internet. There's literally YouTube channels devoted to people just talking very quietly or or scratching velvet or something like that. Is is it is it an acronym for something? Autonomous sensory meridian response. So when you listen to it, it gives you a tingling on your scalp or down your spine. <laughs> 
tingling. Ever had that? No, I would not describe it as a tingling. No, I... it says it's being compared with auditory tactile synesthesia. For me, what happens is that I have to listen to a podcast or something to fall asleep, because if I'm not listening listening to something else, I'm thinking too much. My brain keeps going, and I cannot shut shut it down. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to wrap it up now. So, Matt, tell me, how was? What are you going to do this weekend? This weekend, I have got not a lot on other than doing more work. Lots of work lately. Uh, next, the end of next week, my workload reduces slightly, so I'm I'm back in the game. So there'll be a few more, a few more, hopefully, a few more interviews coming up. Good. I look, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and what about yourself, Julio? Well, I I am starting to produce a Spanish version of the Interplanetary podcast. Yes, what's it called? Interplanetario. Uh, what do you expect? <laughs> what's, 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 what's Spanish for podcast? Podcast. Is it just podcast? Yeah. Not podcast but it's, uh, or something like that. It would have to be called El Podcast Interplanetario, which sounds too much like a, I don't know, like a Venezuelan soap opera name. So <laughs> so I'd rather go for just Interplanetario. Just nice. stays there. Um, yeah, we recorded the first episode and now I'm booking some interviews and I, first I went into this rabbit hole of, uh, reviews of different microphones to see what microphone to buy. Amazing <laughs> that there is so much for a microphone. I have been teaching myself some Adobe Audition to edit and that's so time consuming. So time consuming. I just... I cannot imagine the hours you spend. What what I love about you, Julio, though, is that I've got a feeling that whatever you do, you have to do it absolutely spot on or it's not good enough for you. It has to be, you have to do it correctly. I consider myself so, sort of a completionist. You know, if I would yeah. ever have in my lifetime to play video games again, I'm that guy that goes for the 100% achievement on every single quest and side quest and mini game that well, in, in games like that, Assassin's Creed and those kind of games that you can That's spend. Exactly the personality I was trying to yeah. get at, but you've just you've just done the perfect thing. That, you yeah, can you finish the game you, you in six hours. Yet. You can finish the game in six <laughs> hours, or you can spend 47 hours to complete everything else. And I was that kind of guy. Right, crikey! How long have we talked for now? Right, let's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna finish. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say bye. Bye, bye, bye. bye. bye.